uh, it's, it's a real uh, a joy would be an understatement to say to be here. I get overwhelmed whenever I get a chance to come back um, to this place. I know we were in, in Brooklyn, but still it's just the environment and what this place stands for. And uh, this is where uh, I think about just the history that was made with me and the Lord there um, and how he radically touched my life. I'm not really going to share my testimony tonight, but it's, uh, it's similar to, to JL and, and Cassie and uh, a, a lot of what the Lord's doing in your guys' life. Um, should not be up here, uh, was dead, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, has made me alive in Christ. And uh, on the brink of losing my wife and, and my son, uh, but that has been radically restored. And now we have four kids. <laughs> uh, so it's been amazing. But, um, yeah, I mean it when I say it's, it's, it's an unbelievable honor to be here. Uh, I've, uh, four years ago, a little bit less, about four years ago, we uh, started a church, my wife and I, back in our hometown and I've had now the privilege to just teach regularly, weekly, multiple times a week. But when I tell you that coming here, uh, outside of being with the local body that the Lord has called me into, like this is right there. Uh, this means the world. Uh, so I, I have such love for this place. I have such love for your leaders, uh, for Pastor Paul and JL, Pastor Charles, uh, just incredible, incredible leaders. And uh, I know that they are so dedicated to uh, seeing you men set free. Uh, not just for 12 months, but for a lifetime. Uh, let me just say this. I, I know there's a lot of guests here, which is amazing. My heart is, uh, I definitely want to exhort and encourage the men here in the program, but I trust that God will minister to those that are not in it as well. Um, but if I can play some small part in, in what the Lord is doing in your guys' life, then that would, be, um, that would mean the world to me. So I just want to pray, and then I just have a lot of expectation for what God is going to do through his word. Yeah, if you would just join me in prayer. Yeah, we bless you, Father. We bless you, Jesus. We bless you, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are in this place. I thank you that you set captives free. Thank you, Lord, that there's no situation too hard for you. And even now, I just ask, by your grace, that you would open hearts to see you and to know you. That, Lord, that these men's lives would be forever changed. Lord, that they would have encountered you in such a way that they could never go back. For they have truly found everything that they've been looking for in you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I feel like I just have a lot of thoughts swirling right now, but I hope the Lord just uh, brings, it, brings it together. Um, my time in Teen Challenge, I observed... Uh, I would reduce it to this. I've observed three types of men. Uh, one of them is the one who just outrightly rejects the Lord. He doesn't want anything with, with the Lord, and, and he leaves. Uh, and that's not the one I want to address at all. Uh, it's actually these two other groups of men that I, I want to I really speak into this because what I found is that uh, outwardly, these two groups of men can look very similar. Um, outwardly, it looks like they're both thriving. Uh, but inwardly, there is a world of difference. And what I have found is that you can have two men who can come into this program simultaneously. You can pass through the phases in the same place. You can even stand shoulder to shoulder at graduation day, receive that certificate. But then from that place, one man goes on to thrive in the Lord, and the other one seems to, uh, uh, God is a distant thought almost immediately. And it sometimes leaves me scratch my head as to what, scratch my head as to what has happened. 
And, and what, what I have found in those two men is that, that the man who graduates but then quickly drifts from the Lord, what I found is that he has learned how to be successful in Teen Challenge, but he has not learned how to thrive in the Lord. He has learned how to adapt to his surroundings. And one of the things that I know is coming out of addiction is that we have unique ability to be able to adapt to our surroundings. We know how to survive. We know how to look and see what it is that you need to do, what it is that you need to avoid, and we can quickly jump in line. And I want to be clear that oftentimes this is not from a place of trying to be maliciously, like, deceitful, but this is what we know. Uh, we, we just know how to, how, to, how to fall in line. And what I find is that these men have nothing more than a form of Christianity. It's just an external conformity. We've learned the language. We have learned to raise our hands. We've learned even the scriptures. We've passed through the phases. Uh, we've gotten the certificate. But, but our hearts have never come alive to God. Like something is missing where we've never actually tasted the Lord, to taste and see that he's good. We've never actually encountered God in a way that has radically changed our lives. Like even though outwardly we're doing all these things, inwardly something is deeply lacking. And I want you to know that, that, that this walk with the Lord, it is so much more than just being able to say really good things, but, but not be able to experience any of those things. Like, he's the prince of peace. He's the fountain of joy. But there was a time in my life where I would say those things, and then if you pulled me aside and said, what's really going on in your life? I'd say, man, I'm as restless as ever before. Like, my heart is bound in anger because I really thought Christianity was just these really awesome expressions, but honestly, there's no experience of that. And the Lord has taken me on a journey to be so set free by having my heart really meet with Jesus. Man, Jesus is real. I promise you this, everyone wants a king like Jesus. They just don't know it. Everyone wants a king like Jesus. When you, when you discover who Jesus is, this man, he's, he's humble, he's holy, he's passionate, he has compassion. Everything about him is what our hearts long for. And my prayer tonight, my prayer tonight, and this is not just for those in the program, but for every person here, because there's just always more. My prayer is what the, what the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. He said that the, the, the Father of glory would give us, he would grace us, bestow upon us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would have a knowledge of who God is. That the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Guys, I want you to know, and everyone here, that the knowledge that Paul spoke about is not the ability to just be able to regurgitate all the facts that you've acquired of God over the years. There is value in that, but Paul says, I pray that the spirit would lead you into such a living, dynamic relation with God that it would touch the core of who you are. Like this is beyond just being able to recite all of the things that we have learned. And it's something that, that by our own human strength we can't even do. We need the grace of God to even know God. And God wants you to know him. And I want to encourage you that as I lead you and exhort you to pursue God with all that you have, know this, he's pursuing you even harder. Know this, that, that, the, that the one I'm, I'm inviting you to know is, is, is so persistent in knowing you. And that is what our hope is in, and that's what your hope is in here, that this is not just through your own strength, but you come under this reality, that Christianity is a pursuit of a man who's pursuing us. Uh, and so uh, let, let me say this, and we'll jump into scriptures. To give you just a picture of what I see, uh, a lot of times with these two men that can come to the end of this program and both seem to be doing outwardly the, the same, but inwardly it's different. There's a, um, an expression that there's two ways you can motivate a horse. I don't know if you guys ever heard this. I'm not a country boy, but <laughs> I believe it to be true. Uh, but one way is that you can apply a whip to a horse. And the horse will go when the whip's being applied. But once the whip is no longer applied, the horse stops moving. 
So, for example, if the horse were to go into a barn and see the whip on the wall, it does not start breaking out in a trot. The only time it will, that whip will work is if it's being applied. But there is another way to motivate a horse, and that is the carrot. <laughs> and amazingly, if that horse were to go into the same barn and see a carrot on the floor, no one would have to whip it. It would go right after it. Because one is being motivated from the outside, another one's being motivated from the inside. And what I've found is that those who have never learned to really taste Jesus and know Jesus and encounter Jesus, they've learned to do what's been required of them because there's staff, thank God there is, there's requirements. But once those requirements are lifted, they go right back to where they were. And my desire and my prayer tonight is that you would, would begin, something would be stirred in your heart to know the Lord in such a way that it would be like that carrot. <laughs> That even when there's not a requirement of 30 minutes in the morning for devotion time, you don't need that because you're in love with Jesus. You're so, you have, you're so caught up in who this man is that you don't need someone over your shoulder to tell you this is what it looks like you want to. For Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love him, you obey his commands. And I believe God wants to call you into a deep, deep love relationship. Uh, so if you would, if you would turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 2, please. And I want to I wanna just give, like I said, I mean just maybe bounce around a little bit, but it's unto that, that reality that every man that receives a diploma that's listening right now, that you would, your hearts would be on fire for Jesus. I promise you this, Jesus works 100% of the time if we give him 100% of our lives. Uh, you may have heard the statistics that the Teen Challenge, uh, whatever it may be, an 80% success rate, and that is amazing, but I want you to know that Jesus works 100% of the time. The only reason why there's a gap there is because men won't surrender their lives. But if you give him everything, he will work 100% of the time. And in the book of Colossians, I believe Paul gives language to what I was just explaining. He really presents these two approaches to um, following the Lord or, or, or religion, if you will. And I'm going to start in uh, chapter 2. Specifically, I'm going to look at verse uh, 21, where I believe Paul would speak into the one person who has never come to really know the Lord. And, and the teacher side of me wants to give you all the details here, but, but we're not going to get into it. Here's the summary. is uh, Paul is addressing what's known as the Colossian heresy. There were teachers who came into the church at Colossae and were essentially teaching that there is a pathway to maturity, spiritual maturity. There's a pathway to uh, the abundant life. There's a pathway to holiness that is devoid of resting and trusting in Christ. That you can obtain this, these things, you can obtain maturity, you can have life and life abundantly outside of resting and connecting with the Lord. And the way that you can do it is through self-imposed regulations and restrictions. And if you can just master the word no, if you can just remove enough things out of your life, you will walk in the fullness of life. And Paul's going to say, watch out for this. Watch out for this because it appears one way, but it actually is powerless to set you free. And Paul will explain the dangers of this walk the allure of it, but also how it's so deceptive. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. Paul addressing uh, what the teachers were listing out, these prohibited activities. Paul says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were things that were being taught to the, to the church. Saying, If you could just refrain from these things, uh, you would have maturity and holiness. You would have fullness of life. And Paul says in verse 22, these things are referring to, to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Now listen to this verse right here. He says, they have a, an, 
and in, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which is rigorous self-denial and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have an appearance of wisdom, but he says, actually, they lack the power to really set you free. And the first thing that Paul says is, do not touch, do not taste, all of these regulations that these people were setting up. And what I felt for, for you guys, if, if I were to make an application, is Paul is blowing up one of the golden rules of secular recovery, which is simply avoid people, places, and things. And although there is value and truth in that, if all you learn to do is avoid people and places and things and never touch the right thing, you will never walk in freedom. Paul is saying the glory and the freedom and the victory is not simply found in learning what not to touch, but in learning what to touch, which is Christ himself. Mere avoidance of the wrong things will never energize you to battle against temptation. So, men, I thank God for this program because it's teaching you and putting you in a place where there are necessary restrictions, but those restrictions are a means to a glorious end. In other words, that is not the point itself. Those are to create an environment so that you could meet with Jesus. But if all we've learned to do for a year is to come away from people, places, things, we've learned not to look at women, we've learned not to curse, whatever it may be, but we've never met with Jesus, when we come from this place, Paul says, be careful. It looks good. It can look like you're moving along just well. It has appearance of wisdom. But he says, I promise you this, your heart will be just as bound as ever. Just as bound as ever. So Paul, what is the answer then? Clearly Paul didn't want to just announce what is ineffective. <laughs> and, and, and the same was with me today. I've not come to share what doesn't work. I want, I want to, man, I want to lead you to love Jesus. <laughs> I, I, I want to lead you to, to, to meet with the Lord here. And in verses 1 and 2 of Colossians 3, Paul gives us the remarkably simple answer of how it is that you get set free and have victory. What will curb the flesh? And here is what Paul says. In verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So Paul's answer is simple. He says, you want freedom, you want victory, you want the abundant life, you really want to walk in holiness, you really want to walk in purity and all that God's created. He says it won't come just from merely avoiding all of these things. He says, but it comes from you setting your mind on the Lord. Set your mind on Jesus. What does it mean? He's saying fix your attention. Set your heart, your attention, your life. Fix the gaze of your soul. The biblical word is behold the lamb. Man, you've been called here to behold the lamb. How do you do that? How do you see Jesus? In the word, in worship, in prayer, especially in those times where you come away in that devotion time with the Lord. I can't even tell you how, that's, that's what will change your life more than anything else, is you learning to come away daily, and when you open the word, we think, we think clock when we have devotion, Lord, how long? God thinks, God thinks connection. <laughs> we want to know how long God says, I just want to meet with you. Whether it's a minute, an hour, it doesn't matter. When you come before the Lord and you open up his word, you say, Lord, 
Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you open up the eyes of my heart that I would see Jesus? I want to I t- taste Jesus. I want to see him. I have to know him. And I promise you, the written word will lead you to encounter the living word. And your life will forever be, forever be changed. Paul says, set your mind on the Lord so that you would be captivated and fascinated with the brilliance and majesty of who the Lord is. Romans 8 says, set your mind on the flesh, you will walk in the flesh. (laughs) Set your mind on the spirit, you will walk in the spirit. The battle of holiness is what is preoccupying your thoughts. The battle of freedom is what's dominating your life. Where are your passions? If you want to be set free, man, this is the key to being set free from things. Is to be so captivated by God that the lesser things are broken off of your life. It is not, you will not get set free by just trying to avoid in your own strength, trying to beat the darkness out of your life. How do you remove darkness from a room if you come into a dark room? You do not lift the window up and dump out buckets of darkness. You turn the light on. And I was so frustrated early on in my walk, even as leading as a, as a men's leader here, where I would wake up and say, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I want this out of my life, and I try to beat all this darkness. But when you set your mind on the flesh, you walk in the flesh. <laughs> so I actually found myself just cycling in the same issues, and I would feel shame and guilt, and eventually it passed, and I'd try again. And meanwhile, the whole time, the Lord is tapping my shoulder saying, look, <laughs> behold, Fix your gaze on me. (laughs) Oh, man, there is another way. God is so much more than teeth clenching, (laughs) uh, white knuckling resolve. He says, look, set your mind on Jesus. I used to think Christianity was this. Here's what you got to do. Here's what you can't do. And if you don't do what's right, you'll go to hell. Now, although there is a measure of truth, there's there's true things there, here's what I found. The Bible says if you get one look of Jesus, you'll never be the same. David said in the Psalms, he said, Lord, open up up your word that I would see beautiful things, wonderful things. If we were to translate from this place and go out into the countryside somewhere together, and if we were to, no artificial lighting, we'd look up in the sky, right, and we would see stars everywhere, right? Has anyone ever seen that? I haven't, but, but I heard it's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm, I've lived out here. But you look up there, and the sky is littered with stars, right? Now, what's amazing is that if we were to pitch some tents and fall asleep there, and the next morning we would wake up and look up in the sky, do you see those stars? No, but you know what's amazing? They're still burning just as bright. But what's happened is a more glorious light has come out that has eclipsed all these inferior lights. This is how Jesus works. Instead of trying to fight off all of these inferior pleasures and pulls on our life, the Lord says, if you would set your attention on me, they're still there. The pulls, the temptation is still there, but you don't see them anymore because you are so fascinated with the man Jesus. The word is behold. Behold the lamb. In in 2 Corinthians, Paul unpacks the superiority of the new covenant. And in it, he says the new covenant, which is the blood of Jesus rather than the blood of goats, is so far superior to the old covenant. He says the old covenant is like a ministry of death and condemnation. He says as if it has no glory at all when you look at what we have now. And Paul brings it in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. He brings it to this climactic statement. 
He says, you want to know what we can do in this glorious superior covenant? He says, and we all with unveiled face can behold the glory of God. Every single one of us can now behold and grow in the knowledge of who God is. We all, just as every person in this room is called to salvation, we were all called to the depths of knowing Jesus Christ. You will always be able to tell someone who has learned the secret of coming away to behold Jesus. You will see it in their eyes. <laughs> you will hear it in their voice. You cannot manufacture that. You, you, you cannot copy that. I tell you this, you give me someone who's been in the Lord for 50 years and has never learned to do this, and give me someone who's been in the Lord for one year but has learned the secret of coming away and setting their attention on God, and I promise that one-year person in the Lord will far exceed maturity than the one who's been in the Lord for 50 years. Because it's not just about stringing together consecutive years of confessing him as Lord and Christ, Lord and Savior. That's good, but there's so much more. There's so much more that the Lord has. And the Bible says that as we behold the glory of God, which is the, the weightiness of his character, as you grow to understand who Jesus is, you actually get transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's unbelievable. What you behold is what you become. <laughs> Just as the, the moon has no light in of itself, but there are times where you can walk out at night and see it almost, it feels like it's almost daytime. The moon could be so bright. All the moon is doing is reflecting the light of the sun. It's positioning itself to be in alignment with the sun. So it is with us. When you behold the sun, Jesus, you begin to reflect and radiate his light. The light comes out of your life. And this is why, this is why in 2 Corinthians 4, it says the God of this age, meaning Satan, seeks to blind the minds of unbelievers. God says, set your mind on me so you can see the glory. And Satan does not want you to see the glory of Christ. He doesn't mind if you're in a program. He doesn't mind if you're doing religious activities. But what he does not want you to see is the glory of Jesus. Once that happens, everything changes. <laughs> Everything changes. I want to, um, if you would, if you turn to Hebrews uh, 11, please. Are you guys tracking with me? And, and man, if, if this, some of these things sound foreign, I promise you, the Lord wants to reveal himself more than you want to know him. So when you come away with him and ask, I, I want to see you this way. I, I want to be, be undone by you, Lord. I want to be, be wrecked in the best ways where I can never go back to the way I used to live. He will do it. Man, he will do it. Hebrews 11, specifically verse 24 and 25. I want to share this because in it, the writer of Hebrews, I believe, really further unpacks why, what I said before, why the mere avoidance of things will never be enough to have victory over temptation. It's really important, guys. What I'm about to say, it changed my life. And at first it was so foreign, but it changed everything for me. And it's verse 24, 25. Again, Hebrews 11. It says this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, here's the key, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasure of sin. That tells me two things. Sin has pleasure, but it's fleeting. It's passing. It's transient. It's, it's temporal. But we need to understand something. 
that sin has pleasure. And if you just try to avoid things, you'll always lose the battle of sin because you need to understand that sin has a measure of pleasure, which is why we do it. The reason we sin is not because it's awful like feeling. It's actually because there's a measure of allure that we find in it. The reason why it's hard to resist is because there's a measure of which it feels good. Are you with me? And what, no matter what denomination you come out of, all of us know one thing. No matter what denomination, there's a common thread. We all have a struggle with sin, and we all want to know how to be released from its paralyzing grip. And what I've found often is that the primary theory is if we can just present sin in a horrific enough way, if we can just speak loud enough, threatening enough, angry enough, that we will somehow get people to turn their hearts. Now, I want to be really clear. I believe we should speak truth, bold truth. I believe we should confront. I believe we should lay out the consequences of real choices we make. But if that is the sole method of how we're trying to get people to change their life, the issue is we're not addressing that sin has pleasure and that God has created you with a desire for pleasure. And so what happens is even though we can lay out the consequences of that sin, because there's a pleasure in it, I have found this. Almost every single time, the immediate gratification of sin will almost always triumph over the fear of long-term consequences. Meaning, this is what happened in my life. People would look at me and say, Andrew, you keep doing what you're doing. You're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose your kids. You're going to lose your own life. I heard what they were saying. I believed what they were saying. And I desperately wanted to respond to what they were saying. But the issue was is that there was still a measure of pleasure. Oh, it was twisted and perverted. It left me more broken. But there was still something I was experiencing that even though I heard that reality, my heart was longing for it. Do you know God has made you to have a desire for pleasure and to be fascinated? Do you know why this is the entertainment industry is so powerful? Because we all want to be fascinated. But God wants you to find pleasure in him. God wants you to be fascinated in him. I want what Ezekiel had in chapter 1 where after he got caught up in a heavenly vision, it says for seven days he couldn't open his mouth. <laughs> oh, I've watched some good movies. <laughs> Nothing has left me speechless for seven days. <laughs> there is true pleasure in God. Do you know how you overcome sin and why we need to behold the lamb? Is because we fight the inferior pleasures and the fleeting pleasure of sin by experiencing the ultimate pleasure of God. You say God has pleasure? Oh, yes, he does. For David said in Psalm 36, 8, I drink from the rivers of his pleasure. I say it again, men. You are not here just to refrain from things, but you are here to drink from the rivers of his pleasure. God is not a, some dead, stoic, distant being. There's an experiential knowledge that we can have. If you don't believe it, read the Psalms. David is constantly talking about this God that he was tasting and seeing and encountering. David said in Psalm 1611, he says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Listen, God wants to take us beyond that stick, which is strictly duty. There is a place where God wants us to pursue him from delight. David said, in your presence, I find everything that my heart longs for. And then he said this, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Sin has fleeting pleasures. God's presence has pleasures forevermore. <laughs> Eternal, enduring. You, you want to know how you get set free? Is you get, if I could say this in the most reverent way, you know how you get set free from addiction? You get addicted to God. You get addicted to the pleasures that you were made for. 
Do you ever notice when you read the word sometimes in your heart, like it just explodes with excitement? Or you're in worship and tears are flowing, you're filled with joy. These are the pleasures, they're clean, they're pure, they're life-giving. And the pleasures are where? They're at his right hand, right, forevermore. Who's seated at the right hand? Jesus. Every pleasure you want is found in a man. It's in a man. The Song of Solomon says he is altogether lovely, which means the total summation of this man, you'll come to the same conclusion. He is exquisitely beautiful. And men, to call Jesus beautiful does not rob you of your masculinity. For David was a man set apart, and he said, there's one thing I want, to behold the beauty of God. To behold the beauty of God. I believe this, that God, God will liberate you from the tyranny of inferior pleasures by revealing the superior pleasure of Christ. And once you touch the superior pleasure of Christ, you are now equipped and strengthened with something beyond just your mere self-will to fight against anything that comes in your path. You begin to say, why would I ever settle for this, for a fleeting pleasure, when I have pleasures forevermore in him? And now my heart is completely content and resting in him. Guys, I believe, I believe wholeheartedly we need a paradigm shift. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but I know this marked me as an early Christian and just growing up. I believe this, this thought. Satan is really exciting. Sin is really exciting. And God is really boring. And I believe the whole Christian walk was just about enduring this dull, boring God, but knowing that he has the power of eternity over my life, so therefore I better do what's right so that I can get into heaven. David says that is not the case. He is the author of joy and pleasure. And, and as a Christian, if you don't learn how to taste this and experience the superior pleasures of Christ, what, what begins to happen is you become vulnerable to temptation because a bored Christian becomes very vulnerable. Because you're longing to be fascinated. The power of temptation rests on a deceptive promise that sin is more satisfying than living for God. That right there is the lie. Hebrews 3.13 calls it the deceitfulness of sin. It says this is more satisfying than God. No, 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 no. God is the author of joy and pleasure. Men, you don't need to be intimidated by what Satan offers, for it is a merely a cheap substitute, an empty counterfeit to what God wants to offer you. The real thing in him. John Piper said this. He says, sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. Mm. The call to holiness is not, let me put it this way, the call to holiness, I really believe, is a call to first enjoy God. <laughs> Like, it's not about me beating myself into holiness. That's how I used to do it. Listen, if, if that's all you know, if all you know is, if the only thing that's trying to stop you from sinning is the fear of consequences, here's what I found in my life. I didn't find the power to stop sinning. All I did was I sinned in secret. Because I still was looking for something. So I became a master at not doing it before man, but still I was bound. And so the call to holiness is a call to enjoy God. I believe holiness is the fruit of finding maximum pleasure in God. <laughs> like that's our lives just naturally begin to obey God when he's everything, when we love him, when we're pleased with him. And I promise you this, if it sounds foreign as it did to me, just, just begin to come away with the Lord. And you watch what God does. I believe he'll even do something here tonight. 
the call to holiness is not a call to miss out on fun. <laughs> oh, you, you may miss out on sinful activities, but your heart will never miss out. Because those activities actually lead you, lead you more broken and, and hurting and isolated than you ever were before. If I could uh, share this quote here, it's just a few lines, but I think it gives a good summary to what I've just shared. Uh, by a man by the name of Dr. Sam Storms. He said this. He said, what earthly entanglements exert a downward drag on your soul? What fleshly affections compete with passion for him? The power to disengage from and triumph over all such rival pleasures will come only as we see and savor him who is above. O oh, Father, make known to us the glory of your Son. O oh, Spirit, shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in our hearts. Blind us to all but him. Captivate us with his splendor. I want to share one other verse, and then we're going to close in prayer. If you come to Psalm 27. Could I actually, uh, the lady who's playing this, uh, oh, was that you on the keys? Do you mind just playing softly on the keys? Would that be all right? Psalm 27, and I want to read verse 4. This is a psalm written by David. Now, David's leadership was set apart. <laughs> uh, David was so set apart, even with all of his, his failures and faults, but David was so set apart that Jesus is called the son of David. Jesus sits on the throne of David. And the question we should ask ourselves is what, what separated David? Like, what was the heart of David? What, what made David, so unique in the eyes of God that God would say, this is a man after my own heart. And I believe Psalm 27, verse 4, is one of these verses that so capture the undergarments of David's life. You may have not seen it outwardly, but this is what drove him. And I believe God wants to do this for every single one of you men while you're here. And verse 4 says this. David says, one thing I've asked of the Lord. David was a man of many responsibilities. He was leading the nation of Israel. He had to oversee economy and military. But David said, there's one thing, though, that I want above everything else. One thing I want. One thing I've asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. All the days of my life. David says, not just certain seasons, not when things go well, but David says, this is what I come back to in every season of my life. This is the one thing I'm after. And what is it? He says, to behold or to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Men, the Lord wants you to gaze upon his beauty in this season. The, there is such power when you encounter the beauty of God. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about physical features. Isaiah actually says that there was nothing beautiful about Jesus in the fleshly form. What I mean about the beauty of Jesus is his nature and his works, who he is and what he does. And the more you encounter this, you're left to a conclusion saying, this is beautiful. This is everything I've ever wanted. And when you encounter this, there is such a power when you begin to encounter the beauty of God. And let me, let me illustrate it this way. 
How many of you have ever walked into a museum or an art exhibit, and as you're walking, you catch a, a, a picture frame on the wall. There's a photo that you see, and it causes you to stop and look at it. And because you find it so beautiful, you actually begin to move closer and closer and closer so that you can get up close and begin to behold and inspect every little detail about it. This is how the beauty of the Lord works. Without you even realizing it, the more you encounter the pleasures of God, the more you encounter the beauty of Jesus, what you don't realize is little by little, he's drawing you in. <laughs> it's like the old bait and switch. You have no idea. But you're encountering this man who gave his life for you. You're encountering this man who, who's, whose heart is towards you, who will never leave you nor forsake you. And as you're encountering these things, he's drawing you in and deeper and deeper and deeper. The desire of God is that he does not drive us by duty, but he draws us by his beauty. God does not drive us by duty, but he draws us in by his beauty. And he reveals something, we come closer and we come closer and we come closer. How many of you have ever, maybe this was your story, kind of was mine, but you consider a, a, a young teenage boy in high school who's deeply struggling in life. Like he was in sports, taking care of himself, all things would be going well, and then all of a sudden his life just takes a radical turn. He stops caring about himself, caring about the things he once had passion for, doesn't care about school, doesn't care about taking care of himself. And his parents notice this, and his parents try to do everything they can to wake him up. They have principals and teachers talk to him, but nothing seems to change his behavior. And then all of a sudden, his parents begin to notice that he's taking care of himself again. He's back in the gym again. He's coming to school again. And you say, what has happened? You find out that he found and met a beautiful girl. <laughs> and everything changed. And I want to tell you that this is the way the Lord changes us. So often discipleship is we're trying to focus on behavior first, trying to get people to change their behavior, when really if we can get them to lock into the beauty of God, the change of behavior will follow after. If we would behold the lamb and see him. 